0: It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma.
1: Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today I am joined by Eric Christensen, writer, producer, and director. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Eric. He is an acclaimed documentarian who has built his brand around socially responsible filmmaking that educates, inspires, and heals. A seven-time Southwestern Region Emmy Award recipient, he has the ability to identify an issue within a specific population and have it resonate with a general audience through compelling storytelling. The New York Times has called his work strikingly photographed and sure to give comfort and support to countless veterans and their families. Christensen's last film, Searching for Home, Coming Back for More, has aired more than 2,300 times on PBS stations across the country. As a trauma survivor himself, having lost his home in the Santa Barbara painted cave fire disaster, he understands trauma, the resilience of the human spirit and how important hope is in the healing journey. By spotlighting survivors and their journeys, Christensen has unified audiences around the power of hope and continues to educate the general population about the complexities of trauma. Christensen's work has been seen on major networks, including Discovery, TLC, PBS, and MTV. He has also produced an IMAX film. Welcome, Eric.
0: Welcome. (laughs) Welcome to my soul. No, it's great (laughs) to be here. Thank you so much
1: well i'm I'm excited to talk with you today and uh, and learn more about you and your work. So tell us something about yourself that was not covered in that short bio
0: Well, you know one thing I'm really proud of is I've been uh, clean and sober now for over thirty years, which is actually a big part of my work.
1: That's amazing
0: and, and that's you know an extremely i mean without being spiritually centered for me, that wouldn't be possible. And it, but that's one, actually that's one of my biggest gifts. You know, it's, you know, I have a pyramid, you know, where I put God at the top and then, uh, you know, then my sobriety and my family and then everything else kind of, uh, kind of evens out from there. And my work is somewhere at the very top too.
1: That's really great. how How do you keep yourself uh, motivated and sober for thirty one years?
0: You know Matt, uh, That's a that's a great question. Um, I I think it's a gift I've been given because I always feel that I'm what you would call a newcomer. You okay. know i I've been always put in a position where I've had mentors that have considerably more time than me um being sober and being in our program. And uh and and so I always feel that I have something to learn. And that's and, and the willingness to learn. Mm-hmm. And so that's been that's been really key. You know, I've never well I can't say I've never, but sometimes I think I've understand or I've gotten it. But 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 we don't. We're it's in a it's a constant for me it's a constant journey of learning. And I'm always trying to be willing to, uh, to learn, you know, my, my mentor right now, you know, he's, he's 85 years old with 55 years of sobriety. So I'm like, wow, I have a little bit to learn from him. And that's a key part of my sobriety. So the willingness to learn and and know I can continue growing if I want to when, uh, but unfortunately a lot of times that I, that that puts me in position to grow are painful. And then yeah. I and I know I have to grow and, and and reach out and ask for help again or do whatever actions it takes to get through. So
1: so thinking you've got it all handled is the opposite of willingness to learn.
0: I, oh, that's perfect. Yes, it is. I, I fully agree with that because you know it, it's um it it shuts it shuts that door and uh, once once you know you figured it out, you know um it, it's you know they they say you know contempt prior to investigation that and the fact which is pretty much when you say I understand everything you know it's like you right. you you haven't completely investigated and you shut that door to learning and so yeah that's pretty much the opposite I'd say.
1: Yeah. Well what was the uh tipping point for you where you knew you needed to get sober?
0: Oh that's uh you know it it's well over thirty years ago. Probably about thirty-two years ago, or so um, nineteen ninety, um, June twenty seventh, nineteen ninety. Actually, we're rolling into the anniversary. I think it'll be the thirty-second anniversary because cool. I'm just a little bit behind of the Painted Cave Fire disaster, and that was the tipping point for me. I lost my home and all my worldly belongings in the Painted Cave Fire disaster in Santa Barbara in nineteen ninety. It was June twenty seventh. Started at six twenty seven p.m. They fire department says and uh, that fire came down and destroyed my home and and took all my worldly possessions and 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 you know the drinking and drugging and and mainly the drinking was really working actually up to that point other than the fact my doctor's telling me that my eyes are turning yellow and I have about three years left on my liver and et cetera et cetera. (laughs) But when you're in that when it was working. yeah, it was working really well, right? <laughs> but you know, that's the delusion that we get into, and and it, it it's, and and uh, man, it's completely all enveloping. But uh, that fire came along and took thing everything away, and uh, you know, I, I had about seven months of, uh, I guess what you would call purgatory is a good, you know, yeah. analogy of, you know, I couldn't drink enough to get drunk enough. And there was no possibility of staying sober. I was drinking at the fire. I was very angry. And the the woman that's my wife now, I was seeing then, um, gave me this guy's card and said, you know, this guy has the solution. If you're sick and tired of doing what you're doing, why don't you go see him? And uh, that was a nudge. And I went to go see him. And uh, I got into an outpatient program. But more importantly, I found this outside program that uh, a lot of people have experienced. And, um, and uh, January 13th, 1991 was my first sober day. And I haven't seen fit to physically take a drink, alcohol or any drugs that would affect me since then.
1: That's, that's an incredible story. You know, I've, I've heard it said in the program that, you know, everything works until it doesn't. And then it just, it just all goes to hell, right?
0: You know, and, and the interesting thing, too, and I, I, I've i had this happen in my life, and I've seen it happen with guys I mentor and, and sponsor, but uh, they they come in and, and their first year, things fall apart in sobriety, too. And I, I believe it's, you know, God's way of uh, kind of cleansing us, you know, mm-hmm. and things. But for me now, at my point in sobriety, most of the things that happen to me are brought on by myself. Ah. And that's a key. And that's a that's a tough thing to really, really get your head around. That that, you know, I, I could justify and blame forever, but if I really look closely at 90% of things,
1: they're self-inflicted. I, I've set
0: my, I have se- set myself up for it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so you mentioned an outside program that you're involved in. Uh what program is that?
0: Well, I'll just remain anonymous on that and everybody can fill okay. in the block. <laughs> the blanks
1: <laughs> all right, sounds good. Yeah. So the painted cave fire, how did that fire start?
0: You know they they found out it was an arsonist Oh really and, uh, it was you know we had three days of you know triple triple digit uh, temperatures. The humidity you know was nothing and uh, leading up to it. and then we had what we have uh, what you call the sundowner effect. We also call it Santa Anna's or Santana's here in LA where mm-hmm. the winds actually blow off the mountains out towards the ocean and uh, the sundowner effect in Santa Barbara that evening was intense and uh the, it can get up going down canyons up to 90 miles per hour.
1: Oh goodness. And so
0: it was kind of the perfect storm. And then the arsonist, you know, set that off and, you know, within the first 24 hours of that fire, most of the damage came. And how were many about, 400, acres were 400, about approximately 450 homes and uh and businesses. And at that time it was one of the biggest fire disasters. Then Oakland came along just a few years after that, which was absolutely devastating with over eleven hundred homes, I think. But uh, since then we've had paradise and a couple other fire disasters that have been outrageous. And, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's what happened. It was arsonist. And
1: what do you feel like other than uh, it, it kind of moving you closer towards the mark of sobriety? What is the biggest lesson you learned about, about possessions and about yourself after the fire?
0: That's a great question. I I wish, I could just move the camera over here, but right over here in my office, I have a painting or a painting. I have a picture of the huge plume from the painted cave fire that was over Santa Barbara. And people go, that's kind of macabre, you know, to have that in here. Mm -hmm. Why do you have that in here? And uh, it's because it reminds me that the most difficult, terrible day in your life can be turned into something. And without that fire, I would never have gotten sober. And without that fire, I would never have followed this path to my calling, which is making films about people that have survived trauma and grief recovery. And so I look Mm. at that picture and I'm like, wow, God has a pretty intense way of getting your attention, doesn't he? Right. That was super intense. But, you know, and, and, you know, I'm, as I go through things and bumps in the road and things, I have three kids, when I go through things with them, and I, I just, I, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. Faith is kind of, for me, looking back, hope is forwards. And when I say about faith is looking back, I, I, I look back and I, I, I look and I go, I hope this bump in the road is a God thing. I pray It's God setting up his canvas for something amazing to happen. Yes. If you understand that. So it's kind of almost looking back in the rear view, that thing that happened back there, my kid's difficulty, my difficulty looking back at it, you know, God, I hope that is um, something amazing that you're setting up, Mm -hmm. you know, and I should know because most of the time it is. And that to me is faith. Mm-hmm. Then hope is looking forwards, and hope is what will become of that. Oops, and I hit my microphone. <laughs> but hope is what will become of that. And so kind of faith, and you're somewhere in between them two, you know. Here's here's in the future hope, and here's in the back, faith, and you're somewhere in those two. And that's you know, it's funny because that I I was thinking a lot about that when I was looking at your, some of the other podcasts and your theme and everything. And I'm like, you know, and that's, and it ties into this, this photograph of that fire. It did turn out looking back to be one of the biggest gifts I've, I've received. And that's uh,
1: really great perspective. And in the midst of, in the midst of, struggle and hardship and trauma, it's it's hard to have that perspective to say this this may be useful later, whether I like it or not.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm laughing because I love how, glib, is that the right word? I don't know how easy people throw off some of these things. you know, Ugh. God is doing amazing things in your life, you know, da. God will use this for good in the vineyard, future. When you're like coasting downhill, all those look great, you know. All those yes. sayings look really good. But then, when you're really in the middle of it, the the classic one is, you know, God never closes a door without opening a window. But <laughs> but the corollary to that is God. I hate walking down the hallway. You know, when yeah. you're in the middle of it, it 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 is very difficult, and you. I even forget it. You know, because when I'm in the middle of it, sometimes I do kind of falter in my faith and thus become a little bit hopeless because I'm like, this, it makes absolutely no sense. I don't see an end game to this. And, and the thing is, you know, and then we try to guess the end game, which is really funny because Mm -hmm. it's never any, anything like what, what, what we guess, you know, I I think God has a plan. He does have a plan. I don't think I know.
1: Yeah. I was having a conversation with somebody this weekend and I told him, somebody told me once that, you know, when God, when God answers in the first hour, we kind of know it's God, but when God answers in the 11th hour, it's God with his fingerprints all over it. Mm. And, and I always think, man, if I could just have a three o'clock God and not the 11 o'clock, 1145 God, but, um, but that's me trying to put Got in a box that that he doesn't belong in.
0: <laughs> you know, and it's funny. And sometimes we just we take we take things back. I love the analogy I've heard is you know the guy looking for a parking place. He's 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 late for his appointment, and he's driving around, and he's like, "God, if you just open up a parking place for me now, I'll do whatever you need." Okay, you know, I'm 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 good. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, this parking place. He's looking around. Oh, there's one. He parks and he goes. Oh, never mind, God, I got it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then you just grab your will back and you're like, oh, I did that. No, no. <laughs>
1: Listen, I think God's in that. I tell, tell my husband every time I go to Target and there's a front row parking spot that Jesus wanted me to be at Target that day. <laughs> <Right>. But <laughs> my husband doesn't buy that. So, you know, <laughs> so you started did you start making films before the fire or was this a, a career that came later?
0: oh I I made my first film with the script when I was about eight years old oh really yeah what was it about it was a safety film in third grade (laughs) it's like safety how nice how to be nice at lunch where to like line up and all this stuff and uh but the, the funny thing is and I remember very distinctly and as you get older, for some reason, older memories come back stronger than something that happened only ten minutes ago. Right? <laughs> you know, where did I put my keys? What's oh, I hear you. Did we have this conversation, but I can like re- I'm starting to remember when I'm eight years old, really well. But I, but I remember having this distinct feeling, you know, that I had some sort of message, and if I kept doing this, you know, making movies, uh, I, I'd be able to. uh to find that message and that, you know, it took all the way, I guess, I was, how old was I about 26, 27 when the fire with the fire, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then I made my first film right after that fire. I made this film called faces in the fire about the recovery after a disaster. And, uh, and I remember a year after the fire, we had an anniversary and I'm, I'm fresh. I'm a newbie. sober. And we're having this uh, premiere for the community of Santa Barbara. It was on cable also. And uh, um, I remember that screening and then talking to people afterwards and the people that were in the film, how much it really aided and instigated healing. Mm -hmm. And I knew I had found some sort of calling for myself that... That's what it was. And so going back eight years ago to the kid on the playground with eight millimeter camera, you know, um, to this, uh, I guess I was almost a young man then uh, doing, <laughs> doing this film at 27, 28 around there. And uh, it, it also won my first Emmy award. But the thing that really sealed the deal was when um, the National Institute of Mental Health picked it up and put it in their catalog that was bigger than the emmy for me because then i mm. knew because then they used it to help train clinicians and uh, people going into disaster areas to debrief the survivors and i'm like wow i'm my work is useful
1: did you have any indication while you were in the process of filming and creating this film that it would that it would speak to trauma in that way? Or were you just trying to tell the story of of the survivors and what happened?
0: You know, thanks. Thanks for these great questions. This is great. Um, yes, I, I, I that's a good question. But I, no, not not with that film. No, I didn't know. I was so naive about like just jumping into this thing. I knew I had to get a bunch of interviews of other survivors and, and it's really set up my whole style of how I I'm still working today for my fourth film. But honestly it was, you know, God produces all my movies. And it's funny when when I talk Mm -hmm. to people that are kind of outside my circle, they think it's a little bit crazy, but you know, I'm very much guided in certain ways, you know, and, uh, for example, I mean, right now we're going through a big change on the project I'm working on now, and we're trying to figure it out. And we ran into a roadblock. And I was just talking to one of my producers and, and she reminded me, she goes, every time we hit these roadblocks, it's God's way of redirecting us. And, mm-hmm. uh, but going back to your question, no, I didn't know with Faces in the Fire, you know, Faces in the Fire, I, I did before non-linear editing, too. And I had a massive amount of paperwork and transcripts and, and I just, I just gritted my teeth and got through that thing and put the yeah. movie together, and and then it was a big aha moment when we actually showed it. I didn't have any idea what what would come of it at the time. What? Um,
1: I, so it took you a year to produce that, then, right? Mm-hmm. So did you start it right after the fire?
0: Y- you know, I did actually. I went up and filmed some stuff and. was playing around and even when i wasn't sober i I was thinking about that footage and i wonder where it is but um but then you know then then seven months after that fire i got sober and i got real serious about putting the film together and uh and it gave me something really to grab onto in my sobriety at that time when i was very new and uh (laughs) So, so you
1: said that uh, the National Institute of Mental Health uses it to train um, people on coming through uh, it is just like natural natural disasters or, or what are they using it for?
0: They'll come into like a disaster situation and they'll get uh, local um, clinicians and therapists and people like that I meaning in the mental health field. And they'll get the local people, and they'll train them quickly to be able to come into debriefing centers and speak to the survivors. And so that's one of the places that was used, okay. is to uh, show somebody that hasn't dealt with a trauma survivor what the effects are, and you know the whole three hundred and sixty. It was, you know, what I think it was Arnie Shieldhouse from uh, from the emergency services said mm-hmm. that it was a it was a very clear-cut example of what they do during debriefing and so it really was um a big tool that way and also you know it it inspires and aspires uh people that have went through um went through disasters and then for the people that have not it educates and creates awareness and empathy
1: well that's gotta be not only inspirational to you to know that it's being used in that way but it's got to be um humbling also to see how far spread this work that you didn't even know where it was going how how far it's it's gone
0: you know and and that's uh continuing you know with my f- next film homecoming of vietnam vets journey then my film after that searching for homecoming back for more it's a it's ongoing uh Awe that I that I have of where it ends up. Again, I love I love to have a plan and know exactly what's going to happen, but I don't. and And sometimes it looks kind of bleak, and then God pulls through, and the next thing I know, my film "Searching for Home" coming back from war is aired twenty three hundred times on public television. That's like twelve wow. million people. That's like that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of that's people. That's cr- that's crazy. <laughs> tell know, me and, about
1: tell me about that film.
0: Um, gosh, uh, I don't know where to start with that film. That was, I, I did a film called homecoming of Vietnam vets jo- journey. And I followed, uh, I, I was in one of my men's groups and, um, the film before searching for home, I was in one of my men's groups. It was 10 years after I finished not 10 years, about eight years after I finished searching, uh, faces in the fire. And I was looking for another personal project faces in the fire really got me started directing but i did i did a lot of other shows like for at&t and staples and they're like do that warm fuzzy thing you know <laughs> and uh and i did it but it wasn't the same it wasn't the same i was just doing it for somebody else and and creating a lot of product but then i wanted to get back and do something personal again and something that would move me and and really affect the people in the film and the people watching it and that's was a homecoming of vietnam vet's journey and i was praying for that film and a friend of mine in my men's group said you know i'm a vietnam vet and my mom just passed away i have a lot of stuff coming up and i'm going on this motorcycle run from california to the wall in washington dc and i'm like oh there's my film (laughs) you know and so the next thing i know three weeks later we had just had our uh, our second baby boy and three weeks later i was hitting the road with over 300 Vietnam vets and their supporters on motorcycles going across the United States on a pilgrimage. It's not a motorcycle run. Run for the wall is a pilgrimage. These guys finding their healing and they're welcoming home. They're welcoming home um, 30 years after. Now it's 40 years. And it still goes on to uh, today, other than the COVID has canceled it. Right. Oh, that just
1: uh, gives me, that just gives me chills. That's amazing. I I
0: went on a, I went in a four wheeler with an assistant and captured that whole thing and made homecoming of Vietnam. Vets journey. And, uh, again, it found the right people and everything got on public television, got my first New York times review, very favorable, but not only that, but it, man, the, the emails and the letters and the people I met that were affected by the film, it was overwhelming, you know? And, uh, Go ahead.
1: What 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 style would you say your filmmaking is? Are you journalistic? Are you um, biographical? What how, what category would you put yourself in? I don't know. Okay.
0: <laughs> you know, seriously, I've developed this. You know, and going back to Searching for Home, when we're looking for distributors, you know, we had we were turned down three different places. You know, before we found a distributor for Searching for Home, coming back for more, and they would say, you know, there's too many stories in it. Um, it, it it's too intense. People don't want to hear this, et cetera, et cetera. So I did all the things that supposedly um don't work, or people don't want to see. But it ended up getting the right distributor, Nita, um, out of, you know, uh, for public television, and um, it went on to great success. But my style is, you know, I do an aggregate. I tell one story but I tell it through a dozen different voices. I mean, my new film, unmasking hope, I have over 10, 11 different survivors Mm. telling, telling the story of surviving trauma, but it all comes out as one story because Mm. we all have basically when it all comes down to it, the same healing process. That's right. And, uh, and I believe it's God given. Some people will deny that, but I think it's, I think it is God given just like, just like when you, you know, get a scab or something or get a a scrape and it scabs over, you know, God has a plan for your skin. He designed the body that way. He designed Mm -hmm. you to heal a certain way from trauma and everybody goes through basically the same thing. It looks very different. So I have like, my style is an aggregate, you know, and and each film gets more and more diverse. My thesis becomes more radical because my thesis with you know i kind of discovered it in homecoming of vietnam vets journey that all these guys were telling the same story all these vietnam vets but they're all kind of the same you know they kind of came from the same time etc cetera, etc cetera. so then with home uh, with searching for homecoming back from war, i'm like i want to mix that up <coughs> i went vets of every generation world war ii korea vietnam Guys coming home now, but also I want different genders. Mm. I want, I went some female vets. I went, and so I mixed it up and my thesis was, you know, they're all going to be telling the same story, even if right. they're from world war two or they're from the, from current conflicts and they're, they're uh, a female soldier. They're going to tell the same story. That was my thesis. And I was a little bit nervous until I finally watched the first rough cut and realized yeah, it's working, they're telling the same story. So, I just so your work
1: it- supported your thesis,
0: yeah. So, so I took it to the next level now with Unmasking Hope. And we still have to have that rollout where we watch the whole thing and I see it come together. But I know already because I've done this so many times, all these survivors from shooting mass shooting survivors to 9 to sexual trauma to first responders they're telling the same story, mm. so.
1: You know, I feel like, uh, I shared with you off mic that I had been in a, um, psych and trauma facility. And one of, one of the takeaways for me during that time was that pain is the great equalizer everybody. And like you're saying, trauma, you know, it, it, it puts us all in a place where we're in need of hope and we're in need of healing and whatever form that comes in, we still have the same basic needs. And I think that's what you're, what you're saying with, with your, um, with your current project.
0: Oh, definitely. You know, and uh, I, I, I was going the long way to say that, but that's, that is it. And, uh, and, and, you know, and it just, you know, the, Gosh, I, you know, I just flashed on, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, trauma knows it, it's, it is trauma and pain is a, is an equalizer because it doesn't know any boundaries. And it's just, you know, what really struck me though, with this, with the film I'm working on now, Unmasking Hope it, it's very different because, and and this sounds a little bit harsh, but you know, the, a lot of the soldiers, when they sign up, they know they're going to see action. Right. You know? And that's kind of the thing, and uh it doesn't take away from the trauma and the damage, but th- th- they're going to war, and they know it and uh so it's very different and, and and I knew it was different, but not so intensely when I'm interviewing and getting to know the mass shooting survivors, they were going to a country concert, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, and then they ended up in a war. Right. And, and so it's a very different effect. And it's it, the intensity. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to quantify. or But it is just a different it's a different beast. But right. There's you know.
1: no expectation that you're going to go through a, a, a shooting or a sexual trauma or there's no anticipatory um, thought there at all.
0: And, and you know i knew i knew it going in but man i, I just uh i just finished uh going through my um <laughs> I always like to show these off i ended up going through my uh my transcripts here wow and i have i have three books of these for my new film and i i put notes in everything and this is funny cuz i'm like all the red tabs are the really good parts i have a lot of really <laughs> good parts I like that, <laughs> but you, um, you
1: you put my notebook my notebook to shame. You're you're color coded. I'm not color coded. <laughs> I,
0: I, I'm I'm overly organized on this project. It's one of my ways of delaying jumping into the middle of it. <laughs> 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 but going back to the point of like you know going through those transcripts there because I have three books of them. Took me two weeks, but I was I was floored by that fact that they. They didn't sign up for it. It it came out of nowhere, and so there's this, you know, certain, gosh, I I don't even have the word uh, loss of innocence. That it just it just literally yeah. rips through, you know. And, and there's this um, Eric Church song, you know, the Route 91 Survivors. I have two Route 91 mm-hmm. Survivors in my film, and there's this Eric Church song about route 91. He was there the day before he's a country singer. He was there there the day before the shooting happened. And Mm. he said, I just wish you could be the way you were when I saw you through my Ray-Bans, meaning I wish this thing never happened. I'd because he always wears Ray-Bans and he goes, I wish I could see you that way one more time, you know, and that what a beautiful, beautiful way of saying so much right about trauma i just wish you know and um but it happened and so uh you know but i gotta i gotta um i'm, sorry, I'm getting home <laughs> I, I gotta walk you know that's what i do i got i gotta walk through um the process uh, with these two R- route 91 shoot mass shooting survivors i gotta walk through an amazing process with them we went up to a beach found some rocks each rock was you know chosen by them. They brought them back. We painted the rocks. Mm. And then we went up to the Route 91 um memorial up there in Vegas and left the rocks there. Wow. And uh it's and it's it's a ritual for the Route 91 survivors, but I got to be there with them. And uh That's the biggest compliment I got from that was I never felt the cameras there. Mm-hmm. Because we're really there to facilitate the healing first. And then, oh, by the way, we got a movie too. So it's kind of cool.
1: Right. You don't I want, want that to take to take the front seat.
0: That's no. kind of yeah. That's, so
1: res- resilience is an important word to you. What um what do you think the origin of resilience is?
0: Wow. Well, you know, that's funny because I've been thinking about that a lot. You know, I'm 58 years old, and my some of my sparks are kind of fizzling out, you know. <laughs> and and I'm like, sometimes, well, why don't you why don't you lose weight and get back out surfing? Oh, I'll get it later, you know. Yeah, it's like, and and seriously, so how that what that has to do with resilience, I was thinking about when I was 18 years old. And I had this thing called Steven Johnson syndrome, and I was really, really sick, and my whole body was ulcerated. And they put me in the um the uh what is it, not confinement, but the isolation place, mm-hmm. and nobody could see me for three days until they figured out what I had. But I kept I kept this spirit up. I had this spirit then, and I was laughing at things, and I was still and and I wonder. Now, in the same situation, could I do that? I just visited a friend of mine that's you know he was supposed to die from stage four cancer over eight years ago, and now he has cancer again. But from the neck up, he's brilliant, and the resilience that he has and how he speaks. So I've been thinking about the nature of resilience. I think it has a direct uh, it has a direct connection with God, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and your, and your spiritual health, you know, your spiritual health.
1: Right.
0: You know, and, and, but, but how do you, how do you foster that? How do you get that? I'm not too sure. I mean, I have a big, I don't know on that. I'd like to yeah. just say, Hey, resilience is this, but you know, honestly, when I can't even figure out for myself, if I have resilience anymore, mm-hmm. or what happens to my sparks, I'm just being real honest. I, I don't know. You know, and I see it in variants, in very, uh, in, in, it so varies in the people that I interview and the people that become my friends through these films. Their yeah. resilience. I see some people hiding behind the trauma, I see some people just getting out in front of it. You know, and one thing though that's common, I mean, I think a, a factor I see now, I'm kind of making a little bit of a jump, and it is about resilience the people that are the healthiest i see that have went through stuff and 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 are continuing they're helping other people. Uh-huh. That is a very common thing. My friend Mike who has a cancer. He he's he's helps other that's his whole thing. You know, helping other people. Right. And so i think that's somehow it's a spiritual truth or something when you help others it produces something in you
1: keeps the keeps the healing um from becoming stagnant and makes it like fresh water coming coming through all the time you don't have stagnant water when you're going through healing when you're giving out to other people yeah right you know it begs the question for me whether resilience is innate or whether it's a learned response and because you see some people that just have great resilience through circumstances and you're thinking just and you know how do they do that how is it, how are they possibly living through that with with hope and faith and all that and then there's some that just learn along the way and I think it's probably both and but it does make me does make me wonder if it's one or the other sometimes
0: you know it's interesting because I you mentioned you have kids and they're and they're getting married and everything yeah and, but but how I i you know it's amazing how God's given them all each different you know, gifts and things you yes. know and and it goes back to what you're saying where does the resilience come from is it a god-given gift or is it something they've learned from being in a certain household i don't know but i look at my kids and they're all so different i'm like and they came from the same house <laughs> right. you know it's just <laughs> like it's like i don't know it's 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 um it's such a uh, it's a mystery So they,
1: yeah, we each each come at our circumstances from different perspectives. And I heard somebody once say, it's like looking at the same building from four sides, people can see a totally different building, you know, depending on which side they're looking at it from,
0: you know, and I got to remind myself about that all the time that I'm seeing it from my perspective and you know, well, we're getting into the talk of empathy, you know, and learning about empathy and being able to see it truly through somebody else's eyes. Yeah. Empathy is not sympathy. It's it's very, very different. You know, and I was talking to a friend of mine about <laughs> the crisis in empathy right now. You know, people, yep. you know, they they don't understand somebody else has a different perspective. It, 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 But, you know, in order to have empathy, and I think, and this is kind of what we came up with, and I know I've taken a left turn here on this, but it's, it's along the lines of what we're talking about is, you know, in order to have empathy, you have to become vulnerable, and it's yes. an uncomfortable thing to do. And a lot of people spend ninety percent of their time in the mitigation of pain and 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 the uncomfortableness. You know, and and so they, it, it's a lot easier to throw off a barbed witticism than, mm-hmm. than it is to take a second to try to really understand what they're position is because in order to do that, you have to open yourself up also and then become vulnerable to. Right. And then the other side, I know with 50 something males, I never want to be wrong. So if they've already said something, they'll never go back on it. Right. (laughs) Thank God I have a sponsor that tells me otherwise.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like um we live in a culture where we don't really want to absorb um other people's uh feelings or other people's emotions or their circumstances and like you said it's a crisis of empathy and it doesn't it doesn't serve us well.
0: No. It just you know, and 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 that's you know, going back to the kids, that's one thing I'm trying to somehow teach them, you know, and, and, and mainly, I think by example, they see what I do. I don't think, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know how much they fully understand, you know, my work in film and, uh, and what I do. And I know my daughter does, but that's, this is a whole different conversation, but you know, teaching empathy is a very difficult thing.
1: Yeah. So You know, talking of your kids, um, we all have things that we want to communicate to our children that we want them to know about us, about our lives. Is there one or two things that you really most want your children to know and understand about you?
0: Well, that's. Um... Yeah. And, you know, (laughs) yes, there is. But. The older I get, the more I realize that you know you can't just explain something, you have to just continue to live it. Yeah. You know, and one of the things that I especially my boys, my daughter's pretty amazing. She's more like me. Um, but my boys, I would like to be more outwardly thinking of others, Mm, you know, okay. In in their pursuits and things, you know, instead of just the money, instead of just you know looking at their careers and stuff and and uh but you know it's funny because you being a parent, you know you can't just that is such a intangible thing to try to like tell somebody. It just yes you can't put your hand on it. So what I try to do is I just you know, my, my work in documentary film is not necessarily, it's not my commerce, you know, it's my calling. Yeah. And and if I get lucky, I do make a little bit of money, but it, yeah. it's, it's bigger than that. And the best thing I can do is just keep showing up and, and creating what I create and, and keep connecting with the people I connect with. And they see mm-hmm. that. And, uh, and they've seen that since they were tiny. You know, yeah. they, they I love all sorts of veterans and things. They had quite the experience.
1: I love that. It's not your commerce. It's your calling. That's, that's fantastic. Well, Eric, um, great conversation. I just, I could talk to you all day.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> but um, how do people find your work? What's the easiest way to um, connect with uh, your projects and learn a little bit more about, about, about them?
0: For me. If you want to find out more about me and like all my projects, it's ecproductions.com, Eric Christensen, ecproductions.com. And then um, for my film, it's unmaskinghope the com and hashtag unmaskinghope on Instagram and uh, Facebook.
1: Great. All right. Well, sir, thank you so much for your time and for your work and for sharing of yourself today. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. This is great and awesome questions. Thank you.
1: Give me a workout up here. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, JillRiley.author, and Twitter, JillRiley To contact Jill, email jill at jillreiley.org.